Warning, the following episode of The Bone Garden contains graphic descriptions and mature language. This episode may not be suitable for everybody. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Freaky friends, welcome to episode number nine of the Bone Garden Podcast. If you've listened to us before, welcome back. I hope you're doing good. I missed you. I hope you're thriving, surviving. And if you're new here, what a horrible mistake you've made. Reevaluate, raise your standards. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kate. I am a lifelong true crime and paranormal enthusiast, and I am on a journey to learn about all sorts of creepy, freaky stuff. So if that sounds good to you, that sounds good to me. So we're going to get into some freaky shit this week. This episode is an absolute nightmare. Um, I do realize that I'm a little bit late on this one. And there is a reason. And it's going to sound silly. And you're going to be like, well, if that's the case, then why are you doing this podcast? I'll tell you why. Because when I went into this case, I went in completely blind, as I always do. And I didn't realize what a literal fucking demon we're going to be talking about. But we'll get into that in a second. I just have a really quick announcement. If you've listened to the show before, then you might have actually listened to us on either YouTube or Apple Podcast. Just one of those two things. Well, recently, I uh, joined the modern era, which was weird for me, but I did it. (laughs) And so I have officially branched out the podcast to different platforms. So if you have any friends that you think might be interested in giving us a listen... The Bone Garden Podcast is now available to be listened to on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and of course, YouTube. All of the social media information and those platforms, they're going to be in the show notes. So don't be shy, you know, maybe help a gal out, kind of spread the word that we're kind of everywhere. Um, <laughs> this intro's a mess, I'm so sorry. But anyway, with that little announcement, housekeeping, house announcement thing aside, we are going to dive right into this topic. Now, obviously, there was a warning at the very beginning of the episode, and I know that it was vague, but it was there for a reason. It's not just there for decoration. We are going to be covering Dennis Nilsson. Dennis Nilsson is a Scottish serial killer, and he was responsible for the murder of 16 people. And I know, oh, you know, it's easy. You can just stab people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No. Dennis was a virtuoso. (laughs) God. Dennis was a fucking monster. He was very creative with how he killed people and disposed of their bodies. He's one of those people where it starts out kind of normal. And then he resorts to, like, chopping people up and flushing them down the toilet. Which is a thing that he did. Just, we will get into it. Don't you fucking worry. This case is probably going to be about two or three episodes. Um, We've got so much to get through. I actually read two whole books for this case. Yeah, that's right. I know how to read. (laughs) The books that I used for my sources are Killing for Company, The Dennis Nilsson Story, 
and that was written by Brian Masters, I believe his last name is. And also, Dennis Nilsson's own autobiography, which is called The History of a Drowning Boy. Um, I will definitely put those links for you in the show notes as well. I purchased his autobiography for about $8 off of the Kindle store, technically Amazon. It was both the best and the worst investment that I've ever made in my entire life. Dennis Nilsson has lived rent-free in my noggin for the last six or seven days. Um... For a lot of reasons. First of all, the guy is disgusting. And it's... You you, you guys are going to see what I mean. This is justified. But the, the main reason why he's lived in my head for so long, aside from, you know, him being an actual waste of oxygen and a murderer, is the fact that if you look at him, he looks like a piece of food that was left in the sink. <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to really bring you guys up so that that way when shit gets serious, you won't be as upset as I was when I was researching. Cuz at the end of the day, if you think that this was hard for you to listen to, I had to read this and write it and look at this shit. So, anyway, like I said, there is probably going to be two or three episodes. I could just sit down and tell you everything. But A, that would take me hours, and B, I want to make sure that I can take my time getting through the victims, because no matter who I'm covering, whether it's Nilsson, Dahmer, Honora Kelly, I want to make sure that the victims are the focal point. I don't want to just, you know, give you the killer's entire life story and be like, oh yeah, and then he killed like 16 people. Thanks for listening. No. I want to give them the opportunity. I want to be able to tell you about the actual victims because the victims are what matters the most to me. So any episode that you see from me about Dennis Nelson, they will all be labeled as they always are. Expect to hear mentions of murder, dismemberment, necrophilia, the desecration of human corpses, animal cruelty, sexual assault, childhood sexual abuse. It is awful. Um, Awful is not the right word for it. There are very few true crime cases or serial killers that make me physically sick. And Dennis Nelson was one of them. I was having actual nightmares about this man. um, And I was not in his demographic. Dennis Nelson mainly focused on people, um, men and young boys, that he found to be attractive. So... I'm, I wasn't even going to be a thought in his head because I'm a woman, but I still had debilitating nightmares. Um, and I know that I sound like I'm talking this up a lot and I might be a little bit, I'm really not sure. I'm just trying to brace you for how bad this will be. Um, any resources that I thought were relevant, um, especially things like hotlines for sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse. I will put all of my resources first and foremost in the description. So if you need somebody to talk to, please feel free to contact one of those resources. And um, if you're just feeling not like yourself, if you're feeling depressed, anything like that, I will leave some mental health resources in the show notes as well. So just give it a look. And if you need any of those resources, please reach out. And if you're afraid of talking to strangers, can always talk to me. Everything's confidential. I don't bite. So 
with all of that being said, I don't want to progress this episode, but we are going to jump right in to the absolutely nightmarish world of Dennis Nilsson. So flip on your nightlight and strap in, because here we go. So in order to really understand Dennis Nelson and where he came from and really where he went wrong, you have to understand his parents. So his father was a man by the name of Olav Magnus Mokshim, and he was originally born in Norway. When Olav was of age, he enlisted in the Norwegian military, and he served for quite a while. However, when the Nazi forces invaded Norway during World War II, Olav packed his shit and he left. He went into hiding. He fled to Scotland. When he got to Scotland, for some reason, he changed his name. We aren't entirely sure, but Olav Mokshim became Olav Nilsson. Shortly after settling into his new life in Scotland, Olav met Elizabeth White. Elizabeth was a young 20-something-year-old woman. She was the daughter of a fisherman named Andrew. And the area that she lived in, Fraserburg, it was actually pretty impoverished. There really wasn't a lot of money going around. So in order to bring in some extra income, Elizabeth worked in a factory. But you know how it goes. When the fair maiden meets the handsome prince, they fall in love. Olav courts her. They're going out for a while. And then in 1942, they get married. Now, for most couples, when you get married, you get a house, you get an apartment. You know, you just find a place to live on your own. But for some reason, probably financial, they decided to just move right back on in with Elizabeth and her parents. So everything is fine initially. You know, Olav is working. Elizabeth is working. And even though her parents didn't really approve of Olav, he wasn't the worst guy, right? I'm being sarcastic. Olav had this weird kind of personality about him where... What's the word I'm looking for? He did whatever the fuck he wanted. (laughs) His fundamental and religious beliefs just really contradicted everything that Elizabeth and her family stood for. Like, for instance, Elizabeth and her family, they were very religious. And Olaf just really didn't seem to tie himself to a specific uh, religious following. He also just didn't really seem to care. He wasn't in the relationship for Elizabeth and her family. He was just in it for Elizabeth. Now, on top of him just kind of doing and believing whatever he wanted, he also developed a severe drinking problem. And Elizabeth's parents saw that, and they realized that they really couldn't do much because Olav was married to their daughter. And Daddy, I love him, really seemed to kind of keep him around. The main person that Olav seemed to get into fights with or butt heads with was Elizabeth's father, Andrew. But even though they kept arguing and fighting, Elizabeth was just in it for the long haul. She loved this man. She would go to bat for him. So Olav stayed in the house. In 1943, Elizabeth and Olav welcomed their first child, Olav Jr. While most budding families have the luxury of living together and raising their kids, Olav was technically still enlisted in the Norwegian military, which... I tried to look into to find out the specifics of, like, if fleeing the country 
is actually like okay and you can still serve. But I'm not a professional <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you can't do that, buddy. But either way, Olav would still be called to deployment every now and again. And so Elizabeth was left alone with her baby Olav Jr. Now you would think, technically kind of being a single parent, she would step up and be present for her baby. <laughs> no, you thought wrong. Instead of actually being there for her child, Elizabeth would basically just take the baby, throw it at her parents, and then go off to bars. She would hang out with friends. She would drink. She would have casual sexual encounters, which there is nothing wrong with if that's what your relationship or your marriage calls for. If you guys have talked about it, that's fine. That's that's your prerogative. But they never talked about that. She just decided to do whatever she wanted because what's he going to do? Find out? It's across the ocean. Can't really do anything about that, buddy. Now, things started to get a lot more turbulent very quickly. Because the real kicker is that Olav Sr., her uh, dearly beloved husband, never wanted to have children. You know, he just, he didn't see kids as being in the cards for him. Like, who wants a baby? Like, it's a little tiny version of you that shares, like, the traits of both of the parents. And he's really stinking cute. And you got to bathe him. And he's going to cry. You have to support him emotionally. You got to love him. Just fucking kids. Nobody wants kids, right? I mean, if you do, cool. If you don't, cool. But kids are a commitment. It's not a dog. It's not a hamster. You can't just can't just stick it in a corner. It's a it's a human. But so the couple just basically, long story short, had different ideas of what they wanted in life. And they just weren't compatible. Like Elizabeth seemed to want a family. Olaf just did whatever the fuck he wanted because that was like his life motto. Now, I couldn't really find, like, any reports of if Olav Sr. would go on to, like, actually abuse his children. But, I mean, logic would dictate that if you don't want kids, you're going to be emotionally detached. You aren't going to be present for them. Now, when things start getting rocky for most people, they go to therapy, they'll sit down, they'll have a conversation. Well, for Elizabeth and her husband, their way of fixing things... <laughs> which is great, is to not fix them at all. They completely ignore their problems. They basically just stop talking to each other. The only interaction they really had was when they would be at home, they would sleep and eat, and that was really it. So they each just did did whatever they wanted. Now, the really tricky part is that you want to feel bad for Dennis as a baby, Dennis, as an adult, he died in 2018, I believe. He is the biggest sack of shit, but poor little baby Dennis didn't deserve any of what was done to him. So, Olaf and Elizabeth, they're basically just not talking. They aren't interacting. So, instead of being mature and talking about their issues, they each decide to go out and start sneaking around and seeing other people. And that was leading right up to around the time that Elizabeth found out that she was pregnant with her second child, Dennis. Dennis Andrew Nilsson, our story's antagonist, was born on November 23rd, 1945, right toward the end of his parents' marriage. This was really around the point when things were really starting to fall apart. But funnily enough, 
Dennis's birth wasn't the nail in the coffin for their marriage. Even though Elizabeth and Olaf were technically still married, Olaf was kind of skeptical. He was like, yeah, he doesn't really look like me, so, like, I don't think that I'm his father. But he caved and he did technically write his name on the birth certificate. So, technically, Olaf was his father, but there was always that doubt of if it was his biological father or not. So, Dennis, he had a nickname, and I, I was really on the fence about if I was going to mention it, because it's really irrelevant. Dennis's nickname is Des, like Desmond. Um, nicknames are for good people. <laughs> so no, Dennis motherfucking Nilsson, I am not going to use your nickname, because um, you didn't deserve it. Like, nope, not going to happen. Now, according to Dennis's autobiography... The birth of his little sister, Sylvia, was actually what really fucked over the marriage. So Sylvia was born in 1947, and her birth was really the catalyst for Olav divorcing Elizabeth. Now, ironically, the grounds on which Olav divorced Elizabeth were infidelity and adultery. Regardless of, you know, the fact that he is literally calling the kettle black, the couple decided to finalize the divorce and that was finalized in 1948. After the divorce, <laughs> Olav Sr., he goes back to Norway. He just decides, you know what, I'm gonna, my Uber is here, I'm gonna dip dip potato chip, I'm not gonna stay, not gonna stick around, fuck you guys, fuck my children, I'm gonna go right back to Norway. So, Olav Sr. returns to Norway, and he would go on to marry several different women, and then eventually... He dies in 1973. Meanwhile, Elizabeth and the three Nilsson kids, they continue to live with her parents. Now, one might think that, hey, this piece of shit is out of the picture. Things are going to get better, right? Like, the Nilsson kids were now surrounded by, by people that actually cared about them and loved them and supported them. Like, they're going to do great. They're going to recover. You're going to bounce back. Just walk it off, right? Nope. This patchwork family, this Nilsson White household, actually just, it was probably really what broke Dennis. And I can tell you for certain that one person in that household did break Dennis. There's a theory out there, you've most definitely heard of it. It's called nurture versus nature. The nurture is the environment in which you grow up in, your parents, um, just your, your environment, what you're nurtured by. Your nature is something that you're inherently born with. And I can say with almost complete certainty that in Dennis Nilsson's case, it's about 95% nurture and probably like, like a fraction of him nature-wise that led him to becoming this literal fucking demon. So now that Olav Sr. is gone, you would think, oh, shit, Elizabeth is going to wake up. She's going to realize I have three adorable because Dennis Nilsson was an adorable baby and his siblings were cute as buttons too but it's like I've got three wonderful children that they've been through enough because Elizabeth and Olav senior they were always fighting around the kids so you'd think that she would step up she would be the mom that they need that they need her to be and that wasn't the case because she didn't learn so instead of actually being there for her children she just dumped them off onto her uh, parents and she'd go out and she'd party 
and, you know, do whatever Elizabeth wanted to do. Now, a quote from Nilsson's autobiography actually perfectly sums up the family dynamic at the time. And it says, quote, In this rough bower, I was cradled and spawned by the triple angels of ignorance, poverty, and religious fundamentalism. For the most part, mine was a female-dominated world. Mother, grandmother, and aunt. In the late 40s, Sylvia was the baby, with Granny spending much time looking after her. Olaf was the apple of his mother's eye, and I was the piggy in the middle. As a young child, Dennis really was just a really quiet, reserved boy, and he just, he kept to himself a lot. He never wanted to bother anybody with any of his issues, and that could have just been his personality, but it definitely seems like that was the byproduct of growing up around his parents fighting. Um, I can kind of speak to this in the most minute amount. Without really getting into the specifics, my parents divorced when I was about five years old, so... I remember, you know, being little and my parents arguing because unfortunately, you know, you can try to argue in a private space. Kids are fucking nosy. They're going to find out. They're going to hear things. So I can definitely understand how your personality can be influenced by your parents fighting because they're supposed to be there and concrete and there for you. And if they're trying to hash out their own problems, they don't necessarily always have time for you. Of course, the main contrasts between me and Dennis Nilsson, which I never thought that I would say that sentence, is that my family is fantastic. The marriage just didn't work out. Um, and I didn't fucking kill people. <laughs> my family has always been phenomenal and supportive of me. And I love everybody in my family tremendously. Um, long story short, your parents divorcing is not a free pass for you to fucking kill people. <laughs> But anyway, so Dennis just in general, you would think that he was meant to fail from the start. Um, he never really had an opportunity to build like any concrete memories with his father. He just he never had a father figure because his father just divorced his mom and left shortly after he was born. So Dennis's grandfather, Andrew White, became the perfect fill in for him for a dad. Now, Dennis just really gravitated toward his grandfather and absolutely loved him. Being around his grandfather really helped his personality to open up. He became more sociable. He was a lot friendlier. He seemed a lot happier. And the two of them would literally do everything together. His grandfather was a fisherman, so he would go out on fishing trips for days or weeks at a time. And little baby Dennis would wait on the shore for him to come home. And he would sit there and he'd like look out at the ocean and talk to his mom or his grandma and, you know, ask when, when grandpa was coming home. It even got to the point where Dennis's grandfather, Andrew, he was teaching him how to fish. Little baby Dennis learning how to fish. If he had had a stable environment, because I know that this sounds great right now, had he had a proper, healthy, stable home environment, he could have been a fisher. A fisherman, which I know sounds really insignificant to some people. Um, but would you rather go fishing or kill 16 fucking people? You know, it's a, I know it's hard to choose. I would rather go catch some bass. That's just my opinion. Now, while the relationship between Dennis and his grandfather seemed really, really healthy on the surface, because Dennis had a friend, he had somebody that 
was emotionally available and really cared about him, things were actually incredibly fucking dark. Now, this is where things start to get really, really fucked up. So I hope you're ready. In his autobiography, Dennis wrote, quote, I had arrived as the object of his problems and my presence tempted him as the devil tempts all men. He levied and controlled his secret with the mind and the body of a small, uncomprehending male child. So we are going to be getting into the childhood sexual abuse. And it's going to be very bad. So you have been warned. It's going to get fucking gnarly. But I hate to say it. This is going to be necessary for the story. This is going to help you to understand the person that Dennis becomes. So if this is too much for you, please skip off. I totally understand this was very hard for me to read. Nilsson claimed to remember a series of events that shaped his personality and laid the foundation for the monster that he would become. As a young boy, Dennis never enjoyed physical contact. His mother would actually go on to claim that Dennis just never even wanted to be held. He never wanted to be cuddled or really just have that kind of like physical closeness to anybody. And that definitely could have been because of his parents' divorce and the fact that he was growing up around them fighting. He didn't feel safe enough to allow that for himself, to allow himself to experience like a hug or being cuddled, which is so fucking sad. Um, so it could have been his personality that he just, he didn't want people touching him or it could have been the way that he grew up. And in either case... If he just, if he never felt safe enough to be fucking hugged, then that makes this even worse. And the reason that it's made worse is that if he just never felt safe enough to be hugged or have that physical closeness with a parent or a parental figure, then that means that right from the start, the lines of love and abuse and death, they were blurred for Dennis from the very beginning. One of the most traumatizing events for Dennis occurred one day when he and his grandfather went out for a walk. They would often go out for walks, usually along, like, the beach. They'd take little, like, trails up into, like, the nearby, like, wooded areas, just run around and play. Dennis's grandfather, on this particular day, took him to an abandoned military guard post that was left over from World War II. Now, once they were there, his grandfather took out a flask, and the flask had some tea in it. So he'd brewed some tea, put it into a flask, and offered it to Dennis. And Dennis, not really thinking much of it, takes a big old sip of it. But little did he know, because he was still so young, was that that tea was laced with drugs. So Dennis takes a sip or two, gives it back to his grandfather. His grandfather has, like, maybe a sip or pretends to sip it. And they're sitting there waiting, and then the drugs took effect. So as the drugs start kicking in... His grandfather tells Dennis to pull his pants down, and then his grandfather molests him. He grabs his genitals and forces them to urinate. Now, this was just the beginning of the sexual abuse that Dennis went through. According to Dennis, his grandfather would frequently put drugs in his beverages and then sexually abuse him while he was under the influence. While the abuse became a frequent occurrence, Dennis also recalled the care that his grandfather would show him. 
He would give him baths. He'd play with him. He'd treat him like a child. He'd get him toys. They'd go out for ice cream. So this massive contradiction between his grandfather's behavior during the abuse and just day-to-day casual Andrew White, it could have been a way for his grandfather to groom him, but we really can't be sure. So this abuse persisted for a while, and then in October of 1951, Andrew White sets out for a fishing trip, like he always did. And he sets sail, his boat disappears over the horizon, and he's gone. October 31st, 1951, less than one month before Dennis would have turned six years old, Dennis arrives home from school. And his mother, which was really strange, greets him at the door. Now, he can tell that she, she's kind of off. Her mannerisms are kind of weird. He can kind of tell that she was crying. It just, there's just a weird vibe going on, like even just at the front door. So Dennis's mom tells him, hey, grandpa's home early. Do you want to come see him? Now, Dennis was a little bit confused because he usually just keeps track of when grandpa was going to be back. So, but at the same time, he was relieved. He's like, oh, you know, my friend is home. Of course I want to go see him. So Elizabeth takes Dennis's hand and walks him into the house. And then they end up in the kitchen. And there in the kitchen, on the floor, is a long wooden box. Elizabeth opens up the box's lid. And inside is the body of Andrew White. While he was out on his fishing trip... Andrew White had suffered from a fatal heart attack and died at sea. And even though he was very clearly dead, Dennis's mother reassured him. She said, don't worry, it's okay. He's just sleeping. He'll be fine. Now, Dennis's emotions were very, very contradictory to how you would think that he would react. He was relieved that his grandfather was gone because the abuse was over, but he was also really devastated. After all, despite all the abuse... Dennis adored his grandfather. He was the most stable thing in his life, and it was just very hard for him. After his grandfather's death, he became so incredibly withdrawn. He refused to talk to really anybody. He became very distant. He just didn't want anything to do with anybody. Dennis was put into a really strange place emotionally. He wanted to grieve the loss of his grandfather, but he knew that he could never truly move forward in life. His grandfather would always tell him, this is our secret. You can't tell anybody what we're doing. There was actually a talk show that I listened to a couple years ago, and they were covering a case very similar to this, where a child was being uh, sexually abused by somebody close to them. And one of the hosts on that show mentioned that an adult will never need a child's help, and an adult will never need a child to keep a secret. So that's just, it's heartbreaking that that really bore down on Dennis. Even though his grandfather was obviously gone, he had this belief that if he told anybody what transpired between the two of them, that his grandfather would come back to come get him. Now, needless to say that Dennis had a lot to say about his grandfather's death in his autobiography, but one of the quotes that really stood out to me, it literally gave me fucking chills. Dennis wrote, quote, He lingered in my subconscious like a dark ogre waiting to spring on the fore on psychologically dark nights. 
Granddad was walking with God while his undead corpse slept in a pine box. He did indeed have an afterlife, and he lived it in my head. After the loss of his grandfather, Dennis spent a lot of his free time by the ocean. He would watch ships pull into port or sail out to disappear over the horizon. One day in either 1954 or 1955, because the accounts do vary, Dennis was sitting at the harbor staring off into the water. After a while, Dennis claimed that he noticed a young boy playing in the waves and splashing in the water. He watched the boy for a while, and somehow he fell into the ocean himself. He struggled to tread water unsuccessfully and slipped under the surface as the undertow pulled him farther and farther down into the darkness. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was drowning. There was nobody there to help him. He was going to die alone. As the last of the oxygen in his lungs ran out, a wave of peace washed over him, followed by a feeling of familiar love. He believed that, here and now, in his final moments, his grandfather was going to come to save him. Eventually, Dennis blacked out from lack of oxygen, and he later woke up on the beach. Somebody had ripped Dennis out of the water, and when he regained consciousness, he was naked on the shore. He realized that it wasn't his grandfather, and instead, he concluded that it must have been that strange boy that he saw in the water. However, that wasn't the end of the story, because according to Dennis, when he regained consciousness on the shore, he was naked and there was bodily fluid on him. Shortly after Dennis's near-death experience, the family moved inland to a village called Stricton. Dennis began attending a local school, but he struggled severely. He was already emotionally detached, and he just struggled with social situations in general. He had a lot on his mind. He was a kid, and he shouldn't have had to deal with all of this. He was a loner with practically no friends because most kids just thought that he was weird. Nobody had any idea what he had gone through or what he would go through. But the one subject that Dennis really did seem to thrive in was art. Namely, there was one project where he was compelled to make a painting, and the painting that he created was actually one of some ships on the water. And that painting actually looked pretty good, and it won him an award in school. But anyway, so Elizabeth and the Nilsson children... They'd moved out of their parents' house, and they moved into an apartment building. Now, Dennis and Olaf Jr. became something called Life Boys, which I guess is kind of like the Boy Scouts. It's a lot of outdoorsy things. They go on little meetings. They play around in the woods. That's all that I know about Boy Scouts, because it's Boy Scouts. Um, now, while Elizabeth was out looking for a new husband, Dennis spent a lot of his free time by himself. Now, it wasn't necessarily just about playing in the forest and doing little silly, trivial kid things. He was trying to figure out who he was. And a big part of that was understanding death, especially where his grandfather, who was one of the biggest factors in his life, had passed away recently. So there was one day where Dennis came across a stray cat. And like I said, animal cruelty. I will say, though, this only happens once. So Dennis finds a stray cat, and he captures it, and he brings it to an abandoned building. Once he brings the cat into the abandoned building, he makes an impromptu noose out of some wire, and he hangs the cat to death. Now, Dennis remarked in his autobiography that he was absolutely fucking disgusted with himself, as he should have been, because 
torturing or killing an animal is just not okay. But Dennis just kind of came to the conclusion that, hey, at least I'm not sexually aroused by killing things, right? Now, when Dennis was out and about and exploring his personality and his interests, his mother met her boyfriend, the new man in the house, Adam Scott. Dennis's mother was really, really excited to have a new guy in her life, but Dennis just fucking hated him. Dennis would remark that Adam was a really mundane man. He was just very bland and boring, but he also referred to him as, quote, being the return of a new Andrew White. So for some reason, he saw a similarity between Adam Scott and his grandfather. The family would go on to move again in 1956 because Adam was actually given a promotion at work. And I don't know what kind of promotion this was, but apparently him accepting this promotion also gave him a new housing situation. So Elizabeth, Dennis, uh, Sylvia Olav Jr., and Adam Scott, they move into this house. And instead of it being the five of them living in a three-bedroom house, Adam also invited some of his family members to move in. So, this three-bedroom home was shared with nine people. Now, it isn't super pertinent to mention, but I figured that I would mention it anyway. As I was reading his autobiography, Dennis recalled one point where Adam and Elizabeth, they were invited to a wedding. Um, Somebody in Adam's life, I think it was his cousin or his aunt. Um, But the invitation was only for Adam, Elizabeth, and... I believe it was Olav Jr. They didn't want anything to do with Dennis or Sylvia because they just believed that uh, Dennis and his sister were just bastards, that they didn't technically belong in the family, that they just weren't a part of that. Now, as if things weren't hard enough living with nine people, struggling with the loss of your grandfather, trying to cope with sexual abuse... As Dennis started to enter adolescence, there was more shit that he had to deal with. This time, he had to struggle with his sexuality. So, struggling with your sexuality, just being sexually confused in general, it is very common for a lot of people. Um, you know, you're trying to figure out, oh, am I am I straight? Am I more into guys, more into girls? Which, all of that is perfectly fine. You can love whoever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody and as long as it's legal. Like, don't don't go fucking kids or animals or just... As long as there's consent, you are fine. You know, love whoever you want. It's none of anybody's business. But for Dennis, he was really confused because he was always raised under the belief that, you know, men love women. And back during that time, the concept of bisexuality or homosexuality, they were really frowned upon. They were just taboo. Nobody talked about it. They figured if we don't talk about it, it's not really there. So for a while, Dennis was kind of at war with himself. You know, he was always conditioned to believe that I am supposed to be attracted to women. And he did admire women in a sense. He loved how gentle and patient and loving they were. But he also just, he was really drawn to the strength and the resilience and the masculinity of a guy. So Dennis really couldn't figure out if he was bisexual or gay. And it's not a problem for a lot of people. It takes a long time to figure out who you are. Um, I know I'm getting on my soapbox here, 
but whoever you decide to love, you are wonderful, and that's valid, and all that good stuff. Not for Dennis. Dennis can fuck off. Dennis gets what he deserves. So in order for Dennis to figure out who he was into or specifically what he was into, he decided that to keep things on the on the DL, he would molest his siblings because he had a sister and he had a brother. So he molests his younger sister, Sylvia, and decides, you know what? Women just aren't for me. That's no. Going to X that one out. No, thank you. So then he would turn to his older brother, Olav Jr., and he repeatedly molested his brother. And for a while, he didn't get caught um, until one fateful night where he's, you know, in the act of molesting his brother and his brother wakes up and catches him and beats the shit out of him, rightfully fucking so, um, screaming at him, insulting him. And then from that point on, whenever they were in school, his older brother would make fun of him. He'd call him names. I think he would call him Hen, which I believe is the term for a gay man or a gay boy. Not entirely sure. I'm from the U.S., so our terms are different. Now, things at home began to get even rougher for everybody, um, especially the Nilsson kids. This was pretty unrelated. Um, I couldn't find anything tying how Dennis's mom and her boyfriend, husband, whoever, how they were acting, if that was actually tied to Dennis's um, attacks on his siblings. But Elizabeth and Adam would go on to physically and verbally abuse the kids. Now, to put it in perspective, aside from Dennis going on to, you know, assault his siblings, the kids were doing everything that they could to provide for the family, which I know sounds really weird because they're kids and they should be able to go out and play and go to school and, and grow up and have a childhood. But all of the kids, all three of the Nilsson children, they had jobs. Dennis's job in particular was that he was the paper delivery boy. So he would get up at the absolute ass crack of dawn. I believe in the book he mentioned that he would go an entire day on like a couple pieces of bread and some water. So he would get up, he would run his paper route, come home, get changed, go to school. And he was just doing his best. But his mom just believe that he would never be good enough. And he'd already had a hard enough time understanding himself. There was actually a quote that he'd written in his autobiography where he recalled that his mom would say, quote, you won't know your father if you meet him in the street. Now that could just say, oh, well, your father, Olav Sr., he's gone. You're never going to recognize him. He left when you were a baby. Or that was for her to say, you aren't going to know who he is because I don't know who he is because I didn't care to write down his name and I didn't care to actually keep him involved in your life, which either way is fucking pathetic. It's kids are not an accessory. If you have a child, that is a lifelong commitment. Um, there are a lot of people that I know where they were kicked out of their house at a very young age, like they turned 18 and they're thrown out onto the street. Um, I know people that have been through the foster care system because their parents just didn't want them or they didn't have the means to take care of them. Children are a commitment. They are a human being. So if you are going to make the decision to have a child, then it's your responsibility. Um, that's I'm not going to get on a big soapbox about that. 
but I definitely want to say, because I know everybody's thinking it, that the pure ignorance of Dennis's parents and the complete lack of responsibility and availability of these parents to be there for their children, that is a billion percent part of why Dennis ended up the way that he did. Because he didn't feel that he was comfortable to talk to anybody. But anyway, we're going to keep going because we have a lot to get through. So in this Scott Nilsson White House, there was really one thing that Dennis seemed to find comfort in. And that was the fact that his family had a TV set. It was an old black and white TV, got a few stations. But from the moment that Dennis you know, was introduced to television, he was obsessed. Like, he could sit there, he could watch all these people on these fantastical adventures. He would watch movies about the hero defeating the bad guy and different documentaries about war and news things. And it's, he became so engrossed in television that it got to the point where he envied the cameraman, the camera person, the person that was there, but they weren't there. They were like an observer or a bystander. And Dennis began to just view his life through a metaphorical camera lens. He would distance himself from the interactions with other people. And he would actually go on to make like titles for the movies of his day-to-day life. Now, as Dennis continued through the motions of his quote-unquote films, he became more and more confused about his sexuality he was still on this journey of figuring out okay well I know that I like men but there has to be more to it see because while Dennis was attracted to men like he would see like a a cute teenager on the playground like somebody that went to his school he would find them attractive but it didn't it didn't really do it for Dennis what did it for Dennis was very specific fantasies and the main one that he had Um, And we'll get into the rest of them later. But the one that really got him going was him basically reliving his near-death experience. Now, memories of this experience really started to haunt his dreams. He would wake up in a cold sweat. He would be terrified. But it also just morphed into a fantasy. And this fantasy, instead of it being about a younger boy um, around his age that saved him... It was an older man, and that could have definitely been um, a representation of his grandfather, because as disgusting as it is, his grandfather was a big part of his uh, grasp of sexuality and those kinds of feelings. So he did write about it in his autobiography. I would probably skip ahead about 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. It's really not bad. It's just really, really bizarre. So the quote says, quote, I am swathed in netting, tangled up on the beach, stone cold, drowned, and wearing my yellow swimming trunks. He, meaning the old man, is shouting angrily, but I cannot make out the words. The next thing that I know, he is putting me over his shoulders and walking up the shore toward his cottage. Then he says, you wait until I get you home in a rough, forced whisper. In the cottage, my immediate family and extended relatives are crowded into a small room. Added horror comes from the stark fact that they are immobile and made of wax. 
In the middle of the room, on trestles, there is a dentist-sized coffin lined with white satin padding. I feel his hands grip onto my lower thighs as he pulls me off of his shoulder, lowers me into the coffin, and closes the lid. Now, Dennis would often picture himself both in the role of the drowned boy and the old man. He enjoyed the idea of being helpless and vulnerable himself, but also the idea of preying on the vulnerability of another person. He would act out these fantasies in private and public, normally on a beach, which makes sense for the fantasy, but in his autobiography, he would explain that he would just trudge out into the ocean and wait until he was soaking wet and then climb back onto the sand and lay there as if he was waiting for somebody to come and do these things to him. Now, the interesting thing about this, um, and this is obviously just ad lib, it's just my opinion, because um, I've I've typed out this retelling of his fantasy, but it's interesting how with this being his most cathartic fantasy of like being taken and not even necessarily taken advantage of. But the fact that it's almost like he is putting himself into the perspective of his grandfather. His grandfather's boat was pulled into the harbor after he had passed away. They carried his body up to the house. They placed it into a coffin. So, I mean, we definitely know why Dennis is so obsessed with his grandfather and basically seeing things from his perspective. But it also seems to be this mashup between when they found his grandfather's body on his boat and him nearly drowning. It's this weird uh, amalgamation of his own near-death experience where death almost touched him and his grandfather's experience where death did take him. So it's just really fascinating. I could probably spend hours just picking apart the different fantasies because he... He has a lot in here from his journals, um, entries, actual drawings that he'd made of the victims. It's just, it is unbelievable, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> so, and now you see why this has to be a couple parts, right? Like, I'm not crazy. <laughs> we're almost at an hour now. So, like I said, Dennis would often picture himself as both the role of the drowned victim and the old man. Um... And he would act out these fantasies in public and private, normally on a beach. So we're going to jump forward a little bit to when Dennis is about 15 years old. At this point, with everything that Dennis has been through, he realizes that he won't have a future as long as he's near his family. So he decides to enlist in the British Army for nine years of service. And I realize that nowadays, being 15 and uh, enrolling in the military is very, very young. That was actually pretty commonplace back then. So when he was sitting for his assessment for the military, um, I couldn't find the specifics of like what the options were, if it was like a written test, an actual um, practice test. But what I do know is that Dennis tested phenomenally for cooking. They realized that he is very, very talented. He would understand what he's doing. And if you think of it, cooking is an art form. Um, a lot of people would argue and just say, well, I just make a peanut butter sandwich. I have been cooking since I was very, very young. And 
sometimes if I'm stressed, I don't even have to be hungry. There have been points where like my mom or my brother will walk into the kitchen at like two, three o'clock in the morning and I'm just cooking or I'm baking. And it's not that like I just compulsively want to eat something. It's just it gets out that stress and you get to you get to take these really rudimentary ingredients and make something that's beautiful. So I can definitely see why Dennis would be drawn to cooking. But then you realize what he did and you're like, oh, fuck, this guy was handling somebody's food. Like, keep your nasty fucking hands off of my grilled cheese sandwich, Dennis. <laughs> Don't touch my fucking my fucking salad. Go go in the corner where you belong. Just go. Get out of here. But anyway, so they realize that Dennis is a perfect fit for being a cook for the military. He's technically still a soldier. He still had those obligations of if they need people to go to combat, he would still take that up. But for the most part, he would cook. He would cook for the troops and just be there and help to take care of the people that were constantly out in the field. So in September of 1961, Dennis Nilsson was sent off for training at the St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire, before being stationed in Westphalia, Germany. Also, I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, and I really apologize, but it's too late to go back. If I butcher any of these names, I really, really apologize. <laughs> I am doing my best. I have a pronunciation key in front of me, but... If you're from the UK, I know one of my really, really good friends, Alice, she's in the UK, and she wrote all this out for me. <laughs> if I say it wrong, I'm really sorry, because there's going to be more towns that I'm going to completely fuck up. Anyway, so Dennis is sent off for training at the St. Omer Barracks in Hampshire, and then he's sent off to Westphalia, Germany. Once he's in Germany, that's when things get interesting. You know, training in the barracks wasn't too bad. Um... Dennis wrote about how, like, there were a couple boys that caught his eye, but nothing really came of it. But when he's in Germany, Dennis realizes that drinking makes him more relaxed and sociable. It really helps to bring out his personality because he isn't, he isn't in his shell anymore. It's really hard to be reserved when you've got all this alcohol in you. <laughs> now, the reason that I'm laughing is because <laughs> he adored alcohol. Um, because it would really help him. It would calm his nerves. But he would go out to the bars with his fellow soldiers, and his favorite drink was rum and coke. My favorite, I, I swear to you, this is true. My favorite alcoholic beverage is rum and coke. <laughs> Am I Dennis Nelson? <laughs> but the only issue with Dennis's drinking was that... <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to bring it back up here. Please bear with me. The only issue with Dennis's drinking was that he was incredibly lightweight. He would get basically blackout after two or three drinks. Um, that is not the case for me. So that's, again, where the similarities stop. But Dennis was basically just a mess. He was like, I, I need to drink to be sociable and for people to like me because he was a lot more charismatic when he was drinking. But you'd black out, and that's not fun, dude. I mean, for him, it was fun, but that's where we're getting there. So one morning, after a night of rigorous drinking, having, like, two whole rum and Cokes and, like, a Tylenol PM, 
Dennis Nilsson wakes up in a bed that isn't his. Now, this bed belonged to a German man named Hans Reinhardt. Hans insisted once Dennis was awake and he could actually talk to him. Hans told Dennis that he'd taken him home and he'd undressed him out of his uniform and just tucked him into bed and let him sleep it off. But Dennis wanted to believe that Hans took him home and took advantage of his body. Now, that really became the MO for Dennis for a long time. He would get absolutely hammered and then pretend to pass out from drinking. And then he would hope that somebody would just come scooting along and take advantage of him. In January of 1967, Dennis was transferred to what is now known as Southern Yemen. And he was sent there to work as a cook in Al-Mansura, which is a prison for terrorist suspects. So even though he was there as a cook, like I said, he was technically still a soldier. So if there was ever a need for an extra set of hands to go do some patrols, Dennis would often be called to go walk around the prison and, you know, make sure that things are okay, that people are safe. Just like with regular prisons, things happen. People get into fights, people get killed, people take their own lives. So Dennis was very quickly exposed to dead bodies. But the thing with Dennis that actually ends up being really ironic later on is that he wasn't attracted to these bodies because they were mutilated and they were messy and he just didn't like how they looked. He didn't think that it was right the way that they died. Now, we're going to get into it a lot later on once we actually dive into how he was disposing of bodies. You know, you weren't you weren't the cleanest person there, you asshole. You fucking demon. Anyway, so there is one night when Dennis was at a local bar and shocker, he got fucking plastered again because he looked at a bottle of liquor and now he can't walk straight. So Dennis gets so drunk that he actually misses the shuttle back to the camp. And so, you know, you got to get home somehow. So Dennis decides to hail a taxi cab. He gets into the back of the taxi cab and they drive off. This is where things get a little bit funky um, because this is all from Dennis's testimony. So according to Dennis, allegedly the taxi driver said that the engine was overheating. So the taxi driver pulls the car off the road and he, you know, pops the hood and he's trying to get it to cool off. According to Dennis, this was all an act because by the time the car was pulled over and the hood was popped, the taxi driver dragged Dennis out of the car beat him, stripped him naked, and tried to shove him into the trunk. So as he's shoving Dennis into the trunk of this car, Dennis is feeling around for anything that he can to protect himself, and he finds a tire iron. It's like that cross-shaped metal duder that you put into the tires to take a tire off to change one if it goes flat. So Dennis grabs a tire iron, and he beats the shit out of the driver, and he didn't actually check to see if he was dead. He mentioned that After the guy was on the ground, he kind of poked him with it, but then he threw it down and he just ran back to camp. So that, I'm not really sure if that story actually holds any water, Um, but to Dennis, hey man, I fought off a taxi driver. I'm a cool dude. So while he's stationed in Yemen, Dennis actually had a luxury that a lot of people don't get when they're in the service. Dennis ended up getting his own private living quarters because he was a cook. So all of the cooks in this camp, they got their own private room. They had their own, um, like, housekeeper, servant person. 
they would come in, check in on them, make sure that they're okay. Now, for Dennis, you know, he really appreciated having somebody to take care of him. After all, that was part of his whole shtick, was taking care of somebody and being cared for himself. But there was one instance where his personal housekeeper was coming in to make sure that he was okay, that he didn't need anything for the rest of the day. Dennis offers him a cigarette, and this is a young boy. He's, I believe he was in his early teens. Dennis offers him a cigarette, he declines it, and he's like, well, at least come to bed with me. Now, this is where things get rough because these housekeepers did offer sexual services for soldiers, but you're still a child. Like, that is still a child. That is still pedophilia. That is still technically rape. But so Dennis would take advantage of the services that this young boy offered him. So aside from the servant boy, Dennis saw this little living quarter situation as a way to really explore his fantasies. This is where those fantasies get even fucking stranger. So he would more often than not reenact the fantasy of, you know, drowning on the beach and you know it was it was all in the old mine palace but so that was one of the fantasies that he would focus on is the whole oh i've drowned on the beach and all of that stuff his other two main fantasies that i found revolved around the mirror and mirrors in general honestly freak me out i don't know why it could be cuz paranormal stuff likes to live in mirrors but so i'll walk you through both of them I'm going to be as vague as I can because he writes about them in the book and they're disgusting. So one of the fantasies is where he would take the mirror. It was like a one of like the ones you'd hang on like the back of the door. Like when you're getting ready for work or to go out, you want to make sure that you aren't wearing like your shirt that is covered in Cheeto dust stains and all that stuff, which I've done before. Um, and the people... In the grocery store judged me very much. But so he would take this mirror and he would angle it so that he could see himself from the shoulders down, but he couldn't see his face. And so the reason for that was that he would imagine that he was looking at himself from the perspective of an older man. And then he would he would masturbate. But for him, he I can't even try to like explain how he thought this was working. He thought in his mind that he was an old man that was looking at an attractive person and then fondling them. So that was, that was the most normal fantasy that he had. His second mirror fantasy, um, was very, very weird. (laughs) So this other fantasy was where he would lay down Um, on his back on the floor and he would angle the mirror again so that he couldn't really see his face but sometimes he liked to it was really strange I, I can't even try to justify this man so he would lay down on the floor he would take scissors or rip with his hands he would rip some holes into his t-shirt to make it look like they were gunshot wounds um he would take charcoal rub it underneath his eyes to give himself that kind of, like, sunken-in corpsey look. He would take a mix of, like, saffron, and I think it was oil, because saffron is very red. It stains. 
and he would put that on his clothes, make it look like it was blood, and he would lay there and pretend... <laughs> he would pretend to be a corpse. <laughs> the fuck? So he pretend to be a corpse, and then he would basically have this weird out-of-body experience where in his mind he was a man that was approaching this body and would take care of him and dress his wounds um, and then bury him. So there's that. And then the really big fantasy that he wrote about in incredible detail in the autobiography, um, I'm not going to read it like verbatim from the book, mostly because it makes me uncomfortable and it'll make you uncomfortable too. But like I said at the start of the show, I will definitely link the autobiography in the show notes if you want to go read it. But the gist of this really, really weird, like clockwork orange-esque, but also really fucking heartbreaking fantasy is this. So it follows Dennis's world of what if, you know, what if that taxi driver had killed me? So the taxi driver, after killing Dennis, would take his body into a room that is covered in white tiles from floor to ceiling. The taxi driver would undress him, he would wash him with soap and water, and he would shave his entire body. After his body is shaved and washed, he would take baby powder and makeup, and he would basically do his makeup and powder his body. The man, the taxi driver, would then dress him in a white dress and then bring Dennis to a ceremony where he would marry his grandfather. After he marries his grandfather, the taxi driver passes him off to the grandfather, symbolizing that now he is his grandfather's property. His grandfather then defiles his dead body, but in his fantasy, he is still alive. So his grandfather desecrates Dennis's dead body, and then when he's done, he rings a little bell. After he rings the bell, the taxi driver comes back into the room, grabs Dennis's body, puts him into the back of the taxi cab, and then buries him in a shallow grave in the desert. And I really wish, <laughs> I wish that I had something to say. Um, something to explain what all of this means because there is so much symbolism in this. And only four words come to mind about this fantasy. What? The actual fuck? <laughs> I understand that people are into different things and everybody has their, their sexual kinks. That's fine. I'm not going to judge you if you are a healthy person and this is your fantasy. Cool for you, I guess. But what the actual fuck, Dennis? <laughs> and I recognize that he's been through some shit and that this is a coping mechanism for him. But I literally don't know what to make of it. Um. So... <laughs> I don't even have a proper segue. We are just going to uh, keep on going. <laughs> As he continued his term in the military, Dennis picked up a new hobby. 
film and photography, surprising absolutely nobody. Dennis would spend a lot of his free time filming wildlife or his experience hanging out with his fellow soldiers. Now, he would bring that camera literally everywhere. You know those people? You know, the people that learn a song on an acoustic guitar and then they're like, oh, I'm a guitarist. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you, Daniel? I don't want to hear Wonderwall again. <laughs> but no, Dennis would bring this camera everywhere. He was always filming. He would tell people, oh, I'm working on a project. I mean, you can definitely work on whatever project you want. I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm doing a podcast about murderers and creepy stuff. That's my prerogative. I don't go shoving it down people's throats. I mean, I know that Dennis had ulterior motives. As we'll get into a little bit later on, Dennis would actually like invite friends over and be like, hey, I'm trying to film like a scene for a like an independent film that I'm doing. Can you like lay down on the floor for me? And they're like, yeah, okay, man, that's fine. And he would just film and film and film. Like, Dennis, could you be any more cavalier about being an absolute fucking weirdo? But anyway, so Dennis would go on to serve in the military until 1972. According to Dennis's narrative, he left the military on his own volition because he just really didn't feel comfortable. You know, he was a closeted gay man and he felt like if his secret got out, Everybody would make fun of him. He might have been, like, dishonorably discharged anyway. So he claimed, hey, I'm just going to leave after my nine years and it'll be fine. However, the fact of the matter was that he actually applied for an extension of his deployment. And both fortunately and unfortunately, that request was denied. It could have been for a number of reasons. I couldn't actually nail down why they said no to Dennis. It could have just been because he was a really weird dude. Like, he would go out, he would get blackout drunk. He was just, he had a weird vibe about him. And that's what a lot of people said, was that in all of the jobs that he held, because as we'll see, he works jobs that he is very, very underqualified for. But a lot of the people that he worked with, they're like, he's a really sweet guy, but he's just so fucking strange. It's like, if you only knew, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Either way, for whatever reason, Dennis is gone from the military. He leaves in 1972. After he returns home from Scotland, he actually reconnected with his sister Sylvia for a little while. She was actually doing really, really well. She's doing really well for herself. She'd gotten married. Her husband was phenomenal. She had two adorable little daughters. So Dennis was an uncle and... You know, he should have been happy about that, and to my knowledge, he was. But there was one person that just wasn't happy with Dennis. You want to take a guess? It's his older brother, you know, the guy that he sexually assaulted. Olav Jr. still wanted absolutely nothing to do with Dennis. And frankly, I don't fucking blame him. <laughs> but Olav Jr. wanted nothing to do with Dennis. I'm not sure how involved the eldest brother of the Nilsons was with Sylvia, like if he was keeping in touch with his younger sister or not. But Dennis eventually moves to London. Now that he's in his early to mid-20s, he's looking for work. And the reality of living on your own, whether you're a teenager or in your early 20s, if you're on your own, you're on your own. If you fuck up, there's no one there to catch you. 
So Dennis starts looking around for a job because he needs income. He needs a place to live. I'm going to give you a couple seconds to guess uh, what he thought he was qualified to be. Go ahead. Guess. Dennis motherfucking Nilsson wanted to be a cop. You want to be a fucking cop. Okay. So Dennis decides he wants to be a police officer. So the only caveat was that he had to go to like a police college, I guess is what they call them, um, across the pond. So he begins his training at the Hendon Police College. Now, one day, as the new recruits are sitting around, Dennis overhears some of them talking about this area of London that's called Earl's Court and how it was like the spot for the gay community to hang out. And it wasn't like they were being like, oh, hey, man, if you're gay, you can go over here. They were like, oh, man, like you should just stay away from Earl's Court because that's where all the gay people are. It's just don't be hateful like that. Like, come on, man. But anywho, so they're talking about Earl's Court. And how it was an area that had a bunch of gay bars and clubs. And it was, for the most part, regarded as like a safe space for people that were gay. And it was just a nice little area for folks. So one night, Dennis decides to explore Earl's Court. And he actually recalled an instance where he'd gotten home with a man that he found attractive. Like he met him at a bar. They hit it off. They had some drinks. So he goes home with this man. And... Right as things are, you know, getting ready to transpire, this mystery man and Dennis get caught by the man's wife because his wife had woken up because their baby was crying. So the two of them book it. You know, his wife is reasonably upset and screaming and everything. So they leave the apartment. They go to Dennis's home and they fall asleep holding each other. Now... From what I read in the autobiography, nothing sexual ended up taking place. They just fell asleep in each other's arms. Um, so this man leaves the next morning and Dennis never sees him again. So he had his understanding of love in his hands and it got away from him. Officer Dennis Andrew Nilsson. <laughs> I hate that I have to say those words. Officer Dennis Andrew Nilsson was sworn in as a police officer at New Scotland Yard Police Headquarters in Westminster, London, in the spring of 1973. He was later stationed at the police station in Wembley. On his first day as a police officer, his supervisor, Pete Wellstead, brought him to a location called Brett Mortuary. It's a local morgue where they would keep a lot of uh, the deceased, whether they died of natural causes, whether it was a result of like a shooting, a stabbing, or anything. So they get to Brent Mortuary, and this supervisor, uh, Mr. Wellstead, apparently he would do that with a lot of the new recruits. It's their first day on the job. You're going to the morgue. You're going to be exposed to death so that you're comfortable, so that you don't, like, freeze up if you have to show up to a scene where somebody has died. Now, about stepping into Brent Mortuary, Dennis said this, quote, it was the first time in my life that I'd been fully confronted with the behind-the-scenes official view of dead people, treated like commodities of dead meat to be processed. Such realities collided with a bedrock of romantic notions in my psyche. 
So according to Nilsson, when they were in the morgue, he saw a five-year-old girl laying on an autopsy table. And Dennis became incredibly fixated on two parts of that. The first was the older man, the uh, autopsy technician that was taking care of her. And he was also uh, drawn to the child itself. Now, Dennis was drawn to the mortician's delicate care of the child and the limpness of the child's body. He was faced with the same duality that he'd felt with his grandfather and his warped fantasies around him, being both the strong, capable adult and the helpless, vulnerable child. And he would actually go on to fantasize about this a lot. Dennis was only a police officer for about nine months, and then he resigned in December of 1973. According to a few sources, Dennis claimed that he left the force because of the hostility that he felt around being gay, and he actually wrote about this in his autobiography as well. Um, He claimed that he was just being treated poorly and that he never really felt like he was being accepted, especially where being gay um, was still quite taboo. So about that, Nilsson said, quote, I clung to my morality like a man clinging to a piece of wreckage in the vast expanse of the ocean. And I just want to sit with that quote for a second because it's really fucking ironic that you're going to sit there and talk about your morality when you're going to kill more than a dozen fucking people. Get get off your high horse. Okay, I know that Dennis can't hear this because Dennis is thankfully six feet under or I think he actually got cremated. Anyway, fuck Dennis Nilsson. Fuck your morals, Dennis Nilsson. I don't want to hear it from you. So after he leaves the force, Dennis would actually work as a security guard for a short period of time. And I found a couple different terms for like the building that he was working in. But for the most part, it's like an office complex. I think it was like a college of some sort. So he's working in this complex in London, and the focal point of this is that this complex had a library in it. So Dennis would actually fill a lot of his free time by reading, which reading is good. Good for you. What are you, are you reading? Green Eggs and Ham, good sir? No, he was reading one of his favorite books, which is called The Manual of Medical Jurisprudence and Toxicology. I do not like that, Sam I am, because he would find this book uh, along with others and he would open it and he would just stare at the pictures. So this book, whose name I'm not going to repeat because I will screw it up, um, it was like a medical study book. So it would have pictures from different autopsies, um, photos of people after they expire, and he would fixate on these pictures of people that had died of like heart attacks, drownings, and he also had this very particular fixation on rigor mortis, which, if you don't know, and I might not be able to describe it very eloquently, but I'll try my damnest because you're already listening. (laughs) So rigor mortis is like the tensing of the muscles in your body as you die. So people that died, I think it's about an hour or two after you die, you're still kind of, kind of limp, but maybe six or eight hours after you die, you're stiff as a board. Um, So either way, good explanation or not, he was obsessed with rigor mortis and he just loved looking at pictures of these dead people 
mostly young adults and children. Um, in his book, he did mention how he would fantasize about wondering, like, what else was going on, like, outside of the frame of the picture, because it was mostly just, like, from, like, the chest up. So he was very fascinated in what these people looked like and how they would look to be opened. Um, God, I need a Tums. <laughs> so there is one day um, after he's done working as a security guard where he's like, oh, I need money because money is an important thing to do. So Dennis heads down to a local unemployment office and he tries to apply for benefits. Um, very similar to the United States. If you are having issues with employment, you can apply. Um, you can apply online. I believe we actually have an unemployment office near me. But so if you're doing it in person, you fill out an ass load of paperwork and they see if they can approve you. And if they can, you get a stipend. So Dennis is in this unemployment office. He's trying to get benefits. But instead of getting unemployment benefits, he's just offered a fucking job. <laughs> so Dennis is offered a job working as a civil servant. Um, technically, his title was a clerical officer in the Department of Employment's Job Center. So he starts working trying to help people to find jobs. After he just worked in law enforcement. <laughs> Dennis. Fucking chill, Dennis. But regardless, Dennis would fill his free time, usually after his shifts, with trips to local bars where he would meet up with men and often return to their house for casual sex. Um, to my knowledge, nothing um, non-consensual happened. Um, I could be wrong, Um there are things that he did leave out in his book. There are some things that he's just very vague on. But from what I gathered, they were all consensual. Um, and other times, even if he didn't have sex with the person that he was with, they would just lay together because cuddling is cool, even for a serial killer. In November of 1975, Dennis was at a local gay bar called The Champion. While he was there, he met an 18-year-old boy, man... He's a boy. He's 18. He's too young. So he meets an 18-year-old boy named David Gallican. The two of them sat together. They drank and they talked for a while. And then Dennis eventually invites him back to his house. So they go home together. They have consensual sex. And David, who Dennis later called Twinkle for some fucking reason. <laughs> so Dennis and Twinkle become romantically involved. And they were actually together for a decent period of time. But a couple days after meeting, not years, not months, days, a couple days after meeting, Dennis and Twinkle decide to move into an apartment together. It was a ground floor apartment located at 195 Melrose Avenue. So Dennis Nelson and David Gallican move into an apartment together. They have a new relationship. They have a new beginning. There is just a world of possibilities for them to just live a simple, ordinary life. But little did either of them know that the apartment at 195 Melrose Avenue would become the setting for many of the gruesome murders done at the hands of Dennis Nilsson.
Well, there you have it. That is part one of the horrific, disgusting nightmare realm that is Dennis motherfucking Nelson. Thank you so tremendously much for being so patient with me. Again, I'm really sorry that this took me so long to get out. But as you can tell, there's a lot of information. We haven't even touched the surface of the victims yet. And if you think that part one was fucked, honey, you ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs> As always, I would like to give a massive, ginormous thank you to my best friend in the whole wide world, Pippin. Pippin is the digital artist that did the art for my show, and I'm so fucking obsessed with it, and I literally haven't stopped talking about it, even all these weeks later. If you need any art done, please feel free to go reach out to them. They are fantastic. Their Twitter handle is at A-R-C-H-E-R-K-A-S-A-I. And as much as I really want to leave this episode on some kind of a high note by saying something snarky or clever about Dennis Nelson, I can't think of anything. Because you know what? You know what, Dennis Nelson? I know you can't hear me, but I'm just going to say it to say it. You don't deserve my humor. <laughs> oh, man. You know what? I know how I'm going to end it. I'm going to end this episode by saying that I hope each and every one of you stay safe, be kind to each other, and you know that I don't have to tell you to stay the fuck away from Dennis Nelson, but I'm going to do it anyway. Stay the fuck away from Dennis Nelson. Bye, guys! Bye, guys!